So this is Colossians 1, beginning in verses 24 through to uh, verse 5. Now I, this is Paul speaking, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now you'll notice that I, as I went through that text, I tried to vocally stress certain elements of the text, and I think that's going to be important um, here today. But I want to first go ahead and give us a summary, because if, you're, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, who's the author of Colossians, if you know anything about his writing style, he has these building, kind of snowballing arguments, and a lot of times they manifest, as we saw today, in these like long, run-on sentences and thoughts, and it can be a little bit confusing uh, what he's trying to say. It's just this, these big ideas that keep getting bigger. And so I want to give a real brief summary of what he's talking about here, and then we'll dive into uh, you know, some of the nuance. So Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings, physical sufferings, his health, being imprisoned, uh, being, having been abused, and he's saying he rejoices in these sufferings. Why? Why is he rejoicing in it? And he says because he has been able to, to share the gospel. He's been a minister of God's word. He's been able to share Christ with others. And then he says, and what is his desired outcome for those that are, that are coming to faith for the church? He says to see them matured in Christ, that that is the desired outcome, for them to be matured. And then he says, well, what does that maturity look like? What does that maturity look like? Well, he says their hearts are encouraged 
and that they are knit together in love, that they reach a kind of full confidence and assurance in the person of Christ, and that they're rooted in Christ's wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, and then that maturity helps them, helps guard them against arguments. And he actually uses this term, plausible arguments, and that's kind of an unfortunate English translation. Some of your uh, translations may uh, better say enticing arguments or persuasive arguments. When we think of plausible arguments, we think of like they're, they're probably true, like, oh, that's a plausible theory. But when, what Paul is saying here is, comes from the word, the word that he's using is pithanologia, which is where we get our term pithy from. Like, oh, that's kind of like a, you know, a good rhetorical or enticing, uh, kind of a, a rhetorical hook. And so that's what Paul is saying here is that Christians will face in our culture these enticing, these, these pithy arguments, um, these persuasive arguments. And uh, we can be blown around and, and maybe persuaded by some of these arguments. But he's saying that someone who's mature in the faith who's mature in the faith, they're not blown back and forth like the wind. They're not blown around uh, by these arguments. There's a rootedness, a firmness in their faith. And then he finally concludes and rejoices that even in his suffering, um, he sees the church matured in Christ. They are living in accordance with godly wisdom. They have their faith rooted in Christ and Christ alone and not other things. And so today, what I want us to explore is this, uh, this theme that Paul has here of maturity, maturity uh, in our lives, uh, as this, this kind of spiritual maturity. And I think maturity is something that we all, I think, hopefully, especially as a young church, uh, that maturity is something that we strive for rather than like immaturity, right? Like it's not a, we know that it's not a compliment when someone says, oh, you're so immature, Right? That's not a compliment when somebody says that to you. You're so immature. What does it mean when we say, oh, that person, they're so immature. They're behaving so immature. Uh, what we're saying is that that person should be navigating their life uh, with a certain level or expectation of wisdom, but that they're making foolish decisions. Right? There's, there's an expectation of a kind of development that we're hoping to see in someone, and, and we don't see it. And so we say, oh, well, you're so immature, right? That, that person is so immature. There should be this level of growth, this certain level of development, and we're not seeing that in them. But it's not just about smarts, right? We know that that's true. Uh, you can have someone who's incredibly, like, book smart. They know a lot of facts. There's a lot of data or information that they're able to retain, and yet they still manifest their life in a very immature way. And we know also, right, that, um, that someone can be not real book smart, and they can still uh, be living their life in a mature way. And therefore, maturity, as Paul is framing it here today, I want us to understand that this idea of Christian maturity is something that everyone can attain. Paul is framing this understanding of maturity as not something for the select few, the elite, but it's something that um, everyone can aspire to. It's not just for smart people, which is good news, right? Good news for, for I think, us who aren't so smart. I don't know about you, but I'm not the sharpest shed in the tool. So uh, some of you got it. Some of you got it. Okay. Dad humor there. Okay. Uh, but this idea is that I can navigate life, 
right? I can navigate life with a certain level of maturity, and that's, that's good news. And, but Paul is making, uh, making this text about a specific kind of maturity, a specific kind of maturity, spiritual maturity, maturity in the faith. And Paul understands, as he, again, as he's building this argument, framing this argument that spiritual maturity matters for a long-term faith. If you want to have a long-term faith, you're going to have to grow into spiritual maturity. We know this to be true in other kinds of relational maturity, right? Is the love and affection that you experience after a month or two of dating someone, is that level of maturity in the relationship, is that affection enough to sustain you for a lifetime of marriage? Every married person should be saying, like, no, right? Like, no. Anybody who's been married for any length of time will tell you that in order to have longevity in your relationship, there has to be a kind of maturity that takes place in that relationship, right? The, the butterflies, the dopamine hit that, that uh, you know, takes place early in the relationship has to give way to something more substantive for it to last a lifetime, right? When you're, when you're 15 years old, hopefully there's nobody in here that feels patronized by this, but when you're 15 years old, the secret to love is that, I don't know, that they're, they're super cute and they smell nice, Right? That's, that's the secret to love when you're 15. And by the time you get to you know, your 20s, you start to realize, well, yeah, it's nice if they're super cute and they smell nice, but also it's important you know, that they have a job, right? Like that's important, or that we have mutual interests. Like you begin to kind of mature in your understanding. Uh, and then as we relationally mature, hopefully to a place where we have this long-term uh, maturity, uh, relationally we begin to see that love is about mutual forgiveness and forbearance for, for grace, for service, for sacrifice, right? Anybody who's been married uh, for, for a long, long time, there's a couple in here today that's celebrating their 52 years of marriage. I can guarantee you that 52, yeah, there's 52 years of marriage. If you go ask that couple, what's the secret to that? They're not going to say that they looked cute and that, you know, that they smell nice. Probably, right? It's going to be a lot, of, a lot of forbearance, forgiveness, grace, serving one another, right? That self-sacrifice. If your understanding of love is the same at 75 as it is at 15, then you haven't matured. Right? That's a, and that's to your detriment. That's a detrimental thing that's not to your advantage. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he's helping them understand what spiritual maturity looks like and helping them understand that this is important if they want to be rooted and firm and assured in their faith long term. And so he starts off and he says that their hearts are encouraged in this, in this process of maturity, and he equates... Uh, Maturity with, with what? He says, knit together in love. The mature Christian, the mature church is knit together in love. And the, the word knit here is a Greek word that means held together by. Like 
bonded together, held the, like glued together by, bonded together by. It's the same word that he uses a little later uh, here in, this, in chapter 2, verse 19, where he says that our body is held together by joints and ligaments. That our, all of our body is held together with joints and ligaments. My body right now, as many of you know, is not entirely held together by all of the joints and ligaments. Underneath here, I've got this compression sleeve on my knee right now because I've got a torn ACL, okay? And if I was to take that off and decide to go play basketball, the lower part of my leg would not stay attached to the rest of my body. It would probably be flopping around, okay? Um, And in fact, when I went to the doctor, one of the ways that they tested to know that there was a problem was I sat in a chair, and they grabbed my, my good leg, the lower part of my good leg, and they wiggled it back and forth. And what happened? My whole body moved because the lower part of my leg was attached to the rest of my body. So my whole body felt that movement as they moved the lower part of my leg. And then when they went to my bad leg and they began that same movement, the lower part of my leg sat there and wiggled and the rest of my body didn't. And it was kind of like, ugh, that that feels weird, okay? I'm not a doctor or anything, but I think that's bad, okay? It's not held together, right? It's not held together. And Paul is using this imagery of the body, saying, hey, you, you know how the body how the body, it's really important the body is held together with ligaments, with joints. That's how the body is held together. And he's saying, using that as a metaphor, hey, the church body, the church body, the body of Christ, it's not held together by joints and ligaments. It's held together with what? It's knit together with love. That that is what maturity looks like, being knit together with mutual love for each other. Now, you might say, no, duh, right? Like, that seems self-evident, that the church body should be knit together in love. That should be self-evident. But it's not. It's not. We could find ourselves, you know, trying to bond or unite together around another issue. Um, There are certainly other groups, other clubs, other places that you could be with other people that are coming together around an issue that's entirely separate than just a mutual love for each other and for Christ, right? You could certainly go do that. And unfortunately, there's probably churches that we could find, hopefully not ours, but, but there's probably churches you could find that unite together, not around a mutual love for each other, but around maybe politics or financial status or some man-made rules, which we'll get to next week. Um, and so... Paul is painting this idea that the bond that holds us together uh, needs to be love and not anything else. It's a mutual love. The mature Christian, the mature church is knit together in love. And because of that, then there are implications. There's, there's, there's some, some things that should take place if that's a reality for us and in our church. So I can worship together with you regardless of whether you're rich or poor. I can worship with you regardless of whether you're, whatever your ethnic background is or what country you belong to. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female. We are all one in Christ. And he's not saying that these differences are immaterial, 
But what he is saying is that these are not dividing lines for us in the church, that we are knit together in Christ and in Christ alone. We are knit together. If Christ is supreme, which is what we talked about last week, if Christ is supreme and his loving, uh, his, the way that he loves us is supreme, then that is the way in which we are to relate then to one another with a mutual love. What happens when something is um, knit together? When something is bonded together? When it's braided together? What happens? It becomes stronger, right? It becomes stronger. Um, to demonstrate this, I have a single piece of yarn. It's pretty weak. I'm going to have my son, my mini-me, come up, Daniel, and he's going to demonstrate, hopefully, we didn't test this out, so we'll see. And I'm going to have him with his strength see if he can tear this yarn right in half. Can you, can you grab that? Pull it as hard as you can. Keep pulling. I'm going to desperately humiliate my son here. Keep pulling. You're, you almost got it. Keep pulling. Grab real hard. Pull it apart. Here, can you hold the mic? I'll help you. Here, here we go. Oh, boy, it is harder than I thought. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, there we go. That wasn't too bad. Okay. There you go. You can take that. Okay. We'll give him a round of applause anyhow. As you can see, it wasn't too bad. But I have here the same kind of yarn, the same yarn. It's, it's braided together. There's three of them, right? So in theory, it should only take, right, three times the amount of force to break this as it took to break that piece there, right? No, watch. Can you hear my knuckles cracking? <laughs> like that's not going to break. That's, not, that's very, very strong, way more than three times as strong as that other piece. And uh, so some of you also know uh, fishing line. There's monofilament line, and then there's braided line. And if you go deep sea fishing, for example, you might want a braided line because it has more strength. Even at the same diameter, a, a braided line is way stronger than a single line. And so this imagery of bonding and knitting together is used in Scripture not just to indicate an intimacy and a closeness. It's not just to indicate closeness, but it's also to indicate strength, longevity, durability. The implication is that the mature Christian is not someone who is some kind of maverick on their own like solo. The implication is that the mature Christian isn't the person that says, I don't really need the faith. It can be just me and Jesus, just me and my personal faith, and I'm strong enough, right? I'm strong enough. That the implication here is that no, Paul is saying, the mature Christian, the mature believer, understands that there needs to be a kind of community, a kind of knitting together that takes place, a bond of love. Now, this is really fascinating. Do you know the number one reason that is given in America for why people leave the church and then abandon the faith? Because they found that it's actually in that order. People don't abandon the faith and then leave the church. They found overwhelmingly that people leave the church 
and then abandon the faith. And do you know what the number one reason is? This is really interesting uh, data point because we're, we're coming on the heels of our last sermon series, which was doubt. Um, and there are people that do have a crisis of faith. And so we, we talked about that. But the reason that the majority of people, it's 59%, the reason that 59% of people end up leaving the faith is they say that they were going to church and that they began to get too busy in life. Like life just got very busy and it kind of crowded out uh, their proximity to the church. They just stopped going to church. They stopped going to the, you know, hanging out with other Christians. And, um, and then as they kind of removed themselves from the community of faith, over time, they just kind of slowly drifted away from belief. That it wasn't something that they necessarily like consciously wrestled with. It was just kind of this slow drift. They left the church. They were really, really busy. They never really went back, and they just slowly kind of drifted away from faith. 59% of people in America that leave the church and then end up abandoning faith, that's the reason that they gave. And in other words, they didn't originally abandon the faith, like their faith wasn't rocked by some sort of cataclysmic event. It started with them believing that they were okay in their faith solo. They underestimated the need that their faith had for other believers. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, if you want to have, as Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience, like a long and steady obedience in the right direction, or if you want to have a mature faith that goes the distance, it starts then with knitting and bonding with an affection and love towards each other. Now, if you were to ask the apostles or any of those that walked with Jesus How can someone have this practical assurance, right? That's what our series is called, this practical assurance that they are a true believer or that they are a mature believer. We we can go to the words of the Apostle John, where he says, Let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves and has been born of, for whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. So essentially the answer that the apostles are giving throughout the New Testament is, if you want, you want to know a sign that someone is a mature believer, or you want to examine your own heart to know, am I a mature believer? How do you love the church? How do you love the church? Or, or how do you hate you know, your brothers and sisters in Christ? That will be your answer. And here's the thing about all of this, this position that Jesus takes, that the apostle takes, that the scriptures are taking here today, it's kind of frustrating, right? It's kind of frustrating. The idea of having to spend my time and attention on cultivating love with all of you is great in theory. It's great in theory, and it's really hard in practice, if we're honest, right? I'm an introvert that gets mistaken for an extrovert because I function in a very kind of socially visible way. So a lot of people make this assumption that I'm an extrovert when I'm actually uh, an introvert. And so it takes a lot of energy for me to exist in community. 
typically after I preach a sermon, um, I have what I call the holy hangover, and I go home and I'll, I'll eat like something heavy in carbohydrates like pizza, and then I'll take a nap for three hours. And that sounds awesome, right? And listen, I'm sure that many of you are fun hanging all, but as an introvert, uh, pizza and Hulu and an empty couch give you all a run for your money. Like every, every introvert in here would be saying amen right now, but they're an introvert. And so, but my point is this, that the idea of sacrificially loving each other, of investing into each other, uh, that's great on paper, but in practice, it takes a lot of work. We can be hard to love. You all can be hard to love sometimes. I can be hard to love. But according to Colossians 2.2, we're supposed to be knit together, held together as a church with this mutual love. The uh, great author C.S. Lewis reflected on his life as a Christian. And he said that initially, he only attended church because he thought it was really important to uh, be part of communion. He only went to experience communion. And he said that he was actually really annoyed with uh, the music, the hymns. He did not like the hymns. Uh, He really didn't like the sermons. Uh, And there was a little bit of classism because he even admitted that he did not like attending church with like the common people that were um, uneducated and poor. I mean, so a nice guy, right? Um, um, He was very classist. But later in life, as he matured as a Christian, as he matured, he said, quote, that he was honored by worshiping with men of faith who came in shabby clothes and work boots and who sang all the verses to all the hymns. See, what happens when someone is matured in their faith, when they're knit together in love, is that they begin to lose their pettiness. They begin to lose their apathy for one another. They lose their bitterness. And Paul is saying here, this hard reality is that maturity springs from all of us leaning into the messiness of loving each other, not from running away from it. Now, he he begins to unpack what this means to love one another. He doesn't leave it abstract. So there's this uh, building argument, right, that Christ is supreme, all is subject to him. If Christ is supreme and we follow him, then we love and relate to each other as Christ uh, loves and relates to us. And yes, he says it's for your rootedness, it's for your good, but love, as he exemplifies here, is ultimately not about you. Right? There's, a, there's a sentiment, I think, sometimes in us where we all say, I want to go to a loving church right, where everybody loves me and pours themselves out for me, but I get, I'm off the hook. Right? I mean, yeah, like, let's all be selfish and have everyone love me. I think that's what the sentiment that a lot of us might have sometimes. I want to go to a loving church where it's all about me. But Paul establishes what this love looks like. For us. And he says that it manifests itself as service, loving service. Remember how when we first read the text, I highlighted all the Paul saying, for you, for your sake. 
And remember, he says in, verse, or in chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? For your sake. In chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And then he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He's saying God is using me, using me to help grow your faith, even if it means that I suffer. So church, love as Paul is exemplifying here, this love that unites us together, it's not just like this abstract, intangible idea. He's saying, no, it's it, what it looks like and how it's modeled here is service. Just as Christ laid down his life in service for us, it's not an abstract love. Christ gives us something tangible. So also Paul is saying, and I'm doing the same thing. I'm laying down my life, even suffering for you so that you have something. And all of you are to be knit together in that same kind of love. And it looks like loving service for one another. So is that taking place? Listen, I actually think our church does a really good job of serving each other. From, a mo- from this motivation of love, not from a sense of like duty or obligation, but I think that our church actually does a really good job. And Paul, by the way, is writing to the Colossians, and he's not writing it as a reprimand. Like a lot of times in the New Testament, when we see Paul writing a church, he's kind of calling them out, like, what in the world are you doing? And then he highlights like some of the just insane things that the church is doing, right? But in this case, he's writing them to commend them and to encourage them. He's saying, like, no, this is a good thing. Continue doing this. And I think that if, if Paul was writing to our church, that he would be saying the same thing. Like, hey, good job, Oaks. Like, you guys are the Oaks Community Church. You are loving each other well. Um, make sure that that love moves from kind of this abstract world to something tangible. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a way in which you can say you love someone, and there's a way in which you can actually show love for someone. And I think that that's what Paul is saying here, is, hey, we're held together with love. We're knit together with love, and the way that that love is manifested is by serving. There's a function to it. Um, And so all all of you who are here today have something to give. Like our position here at the Oaks, our belief here at the Oaks is that um, serving the church, serving each other isn't just for a select few. It's not just for, you know, the Christian elites, whatever that means. It's not for super Christians. It's for everyone. You know, you, you, we all come in here with a variety of different ways that we can love each other. Some of you have time, some of you have resources, some of you have knowledge and experience to share, some of you have certain skill sets that can be useful. And I want to give you guys a little bit of an imagination today for what it can look like for you all to serve one another. I'm going to do it by embarrassing a few people and highlighting ways in which they serve the church and have served the church um, so well. So I'm going to embarrass a few people, but I want to kind of show you the, the, the breadth of the ways in which uh, loving service can take place, because I think we can have a really like narrow idea 
of what it means to like lovingly serve one another. And so here's some examples of, of that. And I, and I thought of these examples of like, hey, what's happened in the last two weeks? And I was actually able to come up with like a lot of examples. A lot of you have served so well. So I only chose a, a few here. But if you remember a couple Sundays ago, uh, we had water pouring in right where this giant electrical conduit comes into our building. Uh, and water was pouring out of that. And uh, there, you're not really supposed to mix your water and plumbing with your electrical, but that's what was happening over here. So we had water pouring in uh, from upstairs. And I have no idea. Like, I'm not, like, I'm looking at that and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, I, uh, I have no idea. Um, but Dave Turpin had gotten here early. He had gotten here like hours before because he was serving in the sound booth. And so he like looks at it and he diagnoses it. He's like, here's, here's what I think it is. And he runs to Lowe's and he like gets some stuff to help stem the tide of the water, like, you know, raining down on us. So, so at least I know what it is. I'm like, oh, I'm so thankful. And, and um, at least I know what the problem is. I don't have to diagnose it. So I was like super thankful for that. And then after the service, Nick Watkins is like, hey, do you know what the problem is? And I'm like, I do, but not because I'm so smart, because somebody else used their gift and and told me what it is. So here's the problem. And he's like, oh, I think I can fix that. So he goes upstairs and, you know, like a little bit later, he comes down and and he's like, it's all done. It's fixed. And I'm like, serve the church. Amazing. A couple of guys that had a skill set, right? Lovingly serve the church. Not out of a sense of duty. They're not like, ah duty and obligation, I guess I got. It was like a joy for them to do that. Uh, another individual that I think has, that ser- I mean, I said two weeks, but this individual like serves everywhere all the time is uh, Peter. If you guys know Peter, Peter pretty much serves like on every single service team that exists here at the Oaks. Uh, and he does it like really, really well. And every time I'm like, how is he so good at everything that he does? Um, he also mows our grass here at the Oaks. And I don't know if you've seen how much grass we have here at the Oaks, but it's a lot. So Peter just gives up so much of his time, serves the church, like willingly, lovingly doing that for all of us. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And then this last example I think is amazing because it shows that our love for each other, for the church, isn't just the local church, but the broader church, right? There's Christians on the outside of our walls that should be getting our love as well. We shouldn't just be selfishly loving each other. We should be loving on the outside. And so just three days ago, um, I had an appointment at the bank, uh, uh, at the church bank to take care of some business. Not like the church doesn't have a bank. It was Chase... We, our church banks at Chase Bank, right? Free advertise. So I was going to Chase Bank, the church's bank. I'm stumbling over my words here. But, but I was conducting some church business. And the business only took like 15 or 20 minutes. Didn't really take that long. Um, the rest of the time, the, the banker, who I found out was a believer, and she realized that I was a pastor here at the Oaks Community Church, she's like, do the, Sh- the Schaefers go to your church? And I'm like, yep. And she's like, I love the Schaefers. And I'm like, we all do. We all do. And then she begins to just like pour out what Barry and Jessica have meant to her. And she's like, listen, um, this past year, my husband passed. And the, the words from Pastor Barry were so, it was it just was so helpful to me. Like what, pa- what Pastor Barry said in your church to me, because uh, he's experienced that, that kind of loss as well. 
And uh, so that was so helpful. And then she says, in the first time I met Jessica, the very first time, she's like, Jessica was sitting right where you're sitting. And she comes in here and I find out that she's an opera singer. And I was like, oh my word, my daughter's a singer. My daughter loves to sing. And she said, and I told Jessica, I would love for my daughter to have somebody who's skilled, like listen to her and maybe put a little bit of investment into her because I think she's got so much skill and so much talent, but everybody says that she's too young, that she's only like nine or 10 years old. So she's too young. She needs to wait longer. But I just really feel like if somebody could just hear her. And so um, she, she begins, her eyes begin to get teary as the, the banker's eyes begin to get teary as she's telling me this. And she's like, Eric, I got up and I went to go get some paperwork. And when I came back, Jessica told me, first time I'd ever met her, said, something tells me I'm supposed to hear your granddaughter. Can you call me? And, and she's like, oh, yes, I'll call you. And so she said, Jessica goes and, and she said, and I never called Jessica, never called her. Jessica called me. And, and she said, Jessica listened to her, the granddaughter, invested some time into her granddaughter, and she was just so appreciative of how uh, another believer in another church would invest in her as a believer. She was so impressed with that. That is the kind of church. These, are, these examples, by the way, I could keep on going. I should have probably just gotten up here and talked about how all of you guys do such a great job of serving. You guys do a wonderful job. And so maybe this is just a sermon of encouragement to you. That is the kind of church we are to be. One that is marked not by some other random issue, but one that is marked by loving service for each other because of what Jesus has done for us. And so my challenge for us today is to lean into that maturing process. Because maturity is this process, right, of where you begin to get less and less inwardly focused and more and more outwardly focused. But that's what happens to all of us, right? When we're maybe younger and more immature, like we're necessarily kind of inwardly focused. We're trying to figure out our lives. But then as we mature, what maturity means is that we become more and more outwardly focused on others, serving others. And that is the call for us today. That is what Paul is writing here to the Colossians. He's saying, continue to be mature because that will make you steadfast. That will help you stay rooted in your faith for each other. And that will bless each other in a beautiful way, being knit together, held together, strengthened by mutual love for each other. And so the call for us as we take communion today is to realize that Christ loved and served not just you, but all of us that are here today, everyone that comes. Christ laid down his life for us. His body was broken for us. Uh, The scriptures say that he took the bread with his disciples and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. So part of the gospel, part of the gospel narrative is that Christ loved us, and not in an abstract way, but loved us in a tangible way. And so when we come forward, we're going to remember that. And then the challenge for us is to embody that part of the gospel, to love each other in a tangible way. 
So I'm gonna go ahead and pray. The band is gonna go ahead and come forward. And communion isn't just for uh, those who call this church home. Communion is an open invitation to whoever proclaims Christ as Savior. Christ exemplified this bond of love that we talked about in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so today as we come forward to this table of love, a table of, of self or of a loving service, um, we remember Christ and his sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to love us in a tangible way to die for us. And as a church, I pray that we would lean into the way in which you've loved us, the supreme, superior way in which you've loved us, and that we would love one another. That we would model this loving service. It can be hard because we can be, we're flawed. We're human beings. We're sinful people. And so it can be really hard to, to love, to forgive, to forbear, to show mercy. Father, help that, though, be something that marks our church, something that um, we are known for, not just within our walls, but without, outside of our context. Father, I pray that you would then, as you knit us together, that we would be like a light that cannot be hid, that you would draw in others for us to be knit to, to, to bond to, to love. And I pray that, again, that we would be marked by a service that reflects the beauty of your gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.